0: Well, tonight we're going out to sea with two very great but very different writers. The first of them is Rachel Carson, and I've never felt more honored to live only a few miles away from the Rachel Carson Bridge than today when I came across this uh, only a few hours ago. This is an excerpt from Rachel Carson's 1951 book, The Sea Around Us. It needs no introduction. Just go along with this, I hope my voice can do this justice. She says, The outer shell of the young earth must have been a good many millions of years changing from the liquid to the solid state, and it is believed that before this change was completed, an event of the greatest importance took place, the formation of the moon. The next time you stand on a beach at night, watching the moon's bright path, across the water, conscious of the moon-drawn tides, remember that the moon itself may have been born of a great tidal wave of earthly substance torn off into space. And remember that if the moon was formed in this fashion, the event may have had much to do with shaping the ocean basins and the continents as we know them. When the moon was born, there was no ocean. The gradually cooling Earth was enveloped in heavy layers of cloud, which contained much of the water of the new planet. For a long time its surface was so hot that no moisture could fall without immediately being reconverted to steam. This dense, perpetually renewed cloud covering must have been thick enough that no rays of sunlight could penetrate it. And so the rough outlines of the continents and the empty ocean basins were sculptured out of the surface of the earth in darkness, in a Stygian world of heated rock and swirling clouds and gloom. As soon as the earth's crust cooled enough, the rains began to fall. Never have there been such rains since that time. They fell continuously, day and night, days passing into months, into years, into centuries. They poured into the wading ocean basins, or, falling upon the continental masses, drained away to become sea. That primeval ocean, growing in bulk as the rain slowly filled its basins, must have been only faintly salt. But the falling rains were the symbol of the dissolution of the continents. From the moment the rains began to fall, the lands began to be worn away and carried to the sea. It is an endless inexorable process that has never stopped. The dissolving of the rocks, the leaching out of their contained minerals, the carrying of the rock fragments and dissolved minerals to ocean. And over the eons of time, the sea has grown even more bitter with the salt of the continents. And The most vivid experience of that for me was going to the brow of Bursay out on Orkney and seeing even then constantly uh, that little tidal island just being eaten away, eaten away, eaten away, slowly, slowly, slowly. And I'm reading this in part, as I've mentioned before, because in my long poem, The Great Year, I am setting my characters off onto the sea. They've been in Eastern Europe and going up along the shores of uh, Northern Europe, the Baltic and the North Sea, and they're finally getting onto the sea. I believe now I've been able to place it exactly as leaving from the coast of Brittany and going between Britain and Ireland in the Irish Sea and on up to Orkney. And I've been looking for writing about the sea to spur me on and to get me better, to make the poetry that I'm trying to write better. And doesn't Rachel Carson do this with stuff that otherwise could be immensely dry? She continues to say this. Uh, In what manner the sea produced the mysterious and wonderful stuff called protoplasm, we cannot say. In its warm, dimly lit waters, the unknown conditions of temperature and pressure and saltiness must have been the critical ones for the creation of life from non-life. At any rate, they produced the result that neither the alchemists with their crucibles nor modern scientists in their laboratories have been able to achieve." Those first living things may have been simple microorganisms rather like some of the bacteria we know today, mysterious, borderline forms that were not quite plants, not quite, animals barely over the intangible line that separates the non-living from the living. It is doubtful that this first life possessed the substance chlorophyll with which plants and sunlight transform lifeless chemicals into the living stuff of their tissues. Like sunshine, little sunshine could enter their dim world, penetrating the cloud banks from which fell the endless rains. Probably the sea's first children lived on the organic substances then present in the ocean water, or, like the iron and sulfur bacteria that exist today, they lived directly on inorganic food. All the while the cloud cover was thinning, the darkness of the nights alternated with palely illuminated days, and finally the sun, for the first time, shone through upon the sea. By this time some of the living things that floated in the sea must have developed the magic of chlorophyll. Now they were able to take the carbon dioxide of the air and the water of the sea And of these elements in sunlight and build organic substances they needed. So the first true plants came into being. Another group of organisms lacking the chlorophyll but needing organic food found they could make a way of life for themselves by devouring the plants. So the first animals arose and from that day to this every animal in the world has followed the habit it learned and the ancient seas, and depends directly or through complex food chains on plants for food and life. As the years passed and the centuries grew, and the millions of years and the stream of life grew more and more complex, from simple one-celled creatures, others that were aggregations of specialized cells arose, and then creatures with organs for feeding digesting, breathing, reproducing. Sponges grew on the rocky bottom of the sea's edge, and coral animals built their habitations in warm, clear waters. Jellyfish swam and drifted in the sea. Worms evolved in starfish and hard-shelled creatures with many-jointed legs, the arthropods. The plants, too, progressed, from the microscopic algae to branched and curiously fruiting seaweeds that swayed with the tides and were plucked from the coastal rocks by the surf and cast adrift. During all this time the continents had no life. There was little to induce living things to come ashore, forsaking their all-providing, all-embracing Mother Sea. The lands must have been bleak and hostile, beyond the power of words to describe. Imagine a whole continent of naked rock, across which no covering mantle of green had been drawn, a continent without soil, for there were no plants to aid in its formation, and bind it to the rocks with their roots. And in the sea, life continued to evolve. The earliest forms have left no fossils by which we can identify them. Probably, They were soft-bodied, with no hard parts that could be preserved. Then too, the rock layers formed in those early days have since been so altered by enormous heat and pressure under the foldings of the earth's crust, that any fossils they might have contained would have been destroyed. For the past 500 million years, however, the rocks have preserved the fossil record. By the dawn of the Cambrian period, when the history of living things was first inscribed on rock pages, life in the sea had progressed so far that all the main groups of backboneless or invertebrate animals had been developed. But there were no animals with backbones, no insects or spiders, and still no plant or animal had been evolved that was capable of venturing onto the forbidding land. It was not until Silurian time, some 350 million years ago, that the first pioneer of land life crept out on the shore. It was an arthropod, one of the great tribe that later produced crabs, and lobsters, and insects. It must have been something like a modern scorpion, but unlike some of its descendants, it never wholly severed ties that united it to the sea. It lived a strange life, half-terrestrial, half-aquatic, something like that of the ghost crabs that speed along the beaches today, now and then dashing into the surf to moisten their gills. When they went ashore, the animals that took up a land life carried with them a part of the sea in their bodies, a heritage which they passed on to their children, and which even today links each land animal With its origin in the ancient sea. Fish, amphibian and reptile, warm-blooded bird and mammal, each of us carries in our veins a salty stream in which the elements sodium, potassium, and calcium are combined in almost the same proportions as in seawater. This is our inheritance from the day, untold millions of years ago, when a remote ancestor, having progressed from the one to the many-celled stage, first developed a circulatory system in which the fluid was merely the water of the sea. In the same way, our lime-hardened skeletons are a heritage from the calcium-rich oceans of Cambrian time. Even the protoplasm that streams within each cell of our bodies has the chemical structure impressed upon all living matter, when the first simple creatures were brought forth in the ancient sea. And as life itself began in the sea, so each of us begins his individual life in a miniature ocean within his mother's womb, and in these stages of his embryonic development, repeats the steps by which his race evolved from gill-breathing inhabitants of a water world to creatures able to live on land. Some of the land animals later returned to the ocean in the Triassic period. They were huge and formidable creatures. Some had oar-like limbs by which they rowed through the water. Some were web-footed with long serpentine necks. These grotesque monsters disappeared millions of years ago, but we remember them when we come upon a large sea turtle swimming many miles at sea, its barnacle-encrusted shell eloquent of its marine life. Much later, perhaps no more than fifty million years ago, some of the mammals, too, abandoned a life for the ocean. Their descendants are the sea lions, seals, elephant seals, and whales of today. Among the land mammals there was a race of creatures that took to an arboreal existence. Their hands underwent remarkable development, becoming skilled in manipulating and examining objects, and along with this skill came a superior brain power that compensated for what these comparatively small mammals lacked in strength. At last, perhaps somewhere in the vast interior of Asia, they descended from the trees and became again terrestrial. The past million years have seen their transformation into beings with the body and brain and spirit of man. Eventually man too found his way back to the sea. Standing on its shores, he must have looked out upon it with wonder and curiosity, compounded with an unconscious recognition of his lineage. He could not physically re-enter the ocean as the seals and whales had done, but over the centuries, with all the skill and ingenuity and reasoning powers of his mind, he has sought to explore and investigate even its most remote parts, so that he might re-enter it mentally and imaginatively, which is what I am desperately trying to do. He built boats to venture out on its surface. Later, he found ways to descend to the shallow parts of its floor, carrying with him the air that, as a land mammal long unaccustomed to aquatic life, he needed to breathe. Moving in fascination over the deep sea, he could not enter. He found ways to probe its depths. He let down nets to capture its life. He invented mechanical eyes and ears that could recreate for his senses a world long lost, but a world that, in the deepest part of his unconscious mind, he had never wholly forgotten. And yet he has returned to his mother sea only on her own terms. He cannot control or change the ocean, as, in his brief tenancy of earth, he has subdued and plundered the continents. In the artificial world of his cities and towns, he often forgets the true nature of his planet. In the long vistas of its history, in which the existence of the race of men is occupied a mere moment of time, the sense of all these things come to him most clearly in the course of a long ocean voyage, when he watches day after day the receding rim of the horizon, ridged and furrowed by waves, and when at night he becomes aware of the earth's rotation as the stars pass overhead. Or when, alone in this world of water and sky, he feels the loneliness of his earth in space. And then, as never on land, he knows the truth, that his world is a water world, a planet, dominated by its covering mantle of ocean, in which the continents are but transient intrusions of land above the surface of the all-encircling sea." And I don't know about you, but that is thrilling. And I realize if I had come across that when I was 15 or 16 or 17, um, maybe that would have changed the course of my life. That is just a, an immense piece of writing. And it makes me think that all those people out there in the world who don't want to believe that such things happened, that the world or the universe is as old as it is. Uh, It strikes me that this is the kind of thing that they would want to keep their children from reading or keep themselves from reading even. This is the kind of thing they would want to ban and maybe someday just burn. Not just an account of what uh, happened to our world in the vast, vast history of it, And this even assuming that in the 70 years since Rachel Carson was writing, not every single detail of what I just read is still accurate or true. But uh, not just the account of it, but the beauty of it. Um, It is as good as poetry. It is as beautiful and, at least for me, as affirming and lifting and uh, reassuring uh, as scripture is. I don't know of anything quite like that. And it was a a great feat of chance and luck and curiosity to just have come across that this morning. And now, not something completely different, but something I think just as exciting. Wait one moment here. Now you could do a lot worse in your life if you're interested in history and in prehistory and in archaeology than spending the next many years just reading the shelf of books written by the uh, British archaeologist Barry Cunliffe. Uh, The first book of his that I remember coming across was just called The Ancient Celts. Uh, The first one I bought was Europe Between the Oceans. 9,000 B.C. to A.D. 1,000. He has since, I believe, since his retirement, he is now the emeritus professor uh, at Oxford, I believe, of archaeology. He seems to have made a second career in writing beautiful and gorgeously illustrated books on archaeology of European history and beyond. Uh, My favorite of his is probably the one that's called Britain Begins, but he's also written one called By Step, Desert, and Ocean, The Birth of Eurasia, uh, Facing the Sea of Sand, the Sahara, and the peoples of Northern Africa, and many others. But the one that I've had my eye on for the longest time finally came in the mail this past month. It's called Facing the Ocean, the Atlantic, and Its Peoples. And you remember, that just a moment ago, Rachel Carson told us that eventually, while human beings were not able to return to the sea uh, in the way that other mammals did, we got ships, didn't we? We built boats, and we returned to the sea that way. And one of the marvelous things that Barry Cunliffe is able to do through many of his books, and there's an overlap in so many of them, is he is able to describe what a prehistoric sailor needed to do needed to be able to do and to perceive to get where he was going and then to be able to return home safely. And I just want to read this fairly long passage from Facing the Ocean about these various tactics. They weren't even tactics. By the time they were on the sea and using them, they were just sort of instinct for them, weren't they? And this is just to give an idea of how a prehistoric sailor without GPS um, and with no accurate map uh, of any kind of the ocean let alone of the land uh, was able to do what they did this is incredible not just the journey itself but uh, the way Barry Cunliffe is able to write about it he says "Uh, much of the sailing undertaken in prehistoric and early historic times would have been within waters familiar to the ship's master, inshore fishing, and short-haul trips within the sight of familiar coasts. But even in prehistoric times, longer and far more adventurous journeys were made taking vessels into unknown waters and out of sight of land for periods, often, of several days. For regular trips, of whatever length, the master would have built up a familiarity With the environment through which he traveled, able to assess the movement of his craft in relation to the sea and the winds, to interpret the signs of the land still out of sight, and to recognize the shape of land once it came close enough to be visible. What was required was a mental map of the voyage incorporating knowledge gained from all the senses. A Bristol ship's captain bound for Lisbon in the 13th century would have been familiar with the Sillies, Ushant, and Cape Finisterre, but may have known little of the coasts between, therefore his mental map needed only to identify the landmarks and to know how to progress from one to the other. A local fisherman working around any of those places needed a far more intimate knowledge of the inshore waters to survive. When approaching land from the open sea, a different range of skills was required. Inshore waters were potentially dangerous, and it was of overriding importance to the master to be able to assess as quickly as possible the approach of land and, when sighted, to judge where the landfall was being made so that his knowledge of the hazards could be brought to bear. To ensure a safe landing. Often, from far out to sea, land would be signaled by orographic cloud, and there were other signs that could be used. Certain birds, such as fulmars, fly landward to roost as night approaches, while the presence of cod in the North Atlantic is indicative of the shallower waters of the continental shelf even the smell of land may sometimes be sensed before it comes into sight. Another technique widely used to assess position was the sounding lead, a lead weight hollowed on the underside. The recess was smeared with tallow to capture sediment from the seabed when the weight was heaved overboard. The kind of sediment accumulating on the seafloor can be highly specific to location. In the early 16th century, a Spanish mariner finding fine black sand in his lead judged that the lizard peninsula was safely a beam of his vessel, but white sand and white soft worms from shallow waters alerted him that the lizard was nearby. The value of the lead lay not only in its ability to sample the bottom, but also as a measure of the depth of water beneath the vessel. In shoal waters, this information was crucial, not least because of the considerable variation caused by tide. In these circumstances, the sounding lead, weighing about seven pounds, would have been in constant use, checking for danger as the vessel moved forward. Further out to sea, the deep sea lead and line would have been of value in giving forewarning of the approach of land. The hundred fathom, circa two hundred meter, contour marked the effective edge of the continental shelf, beyond which the seabed dived off precipitously. Isn't that a a terrifying line? Uh, beyond which the seabed dived off precipitously. Establishing this position would have told the pilot approaching the Atlantic coast of Iberia that he was 20 miles off land, and further north around Brittany, in southwest Britain, the edge of the continental shelf was about a 100 miles from land, but even here, constant soundings taken to build up a picture of the seabed contours would have enabled the pilot to judge the vessel's progress against his store of detailed knowledge. The use of the sounding lead is probably as old as sailing. Herodotus was certainly familiar with it in the 5th century BC, while actual examples of leads dating back to the 2nd century BC have been found around the Mediterranean coast of France. Once land had been sighted, it was necessary to identify it. In good visibility, land 30 meters high could be seen from a distance of 11 nautical miles, while a headland of 300 meters might be spotted from 35 nautical miles. The profile of the land horizon, the succession of the promontories coming into view, and the color of the cliffs were all valuable indicators of position. And so, too, were prominent skyline landmarks, such as a barrow or standing stone, a cliff temple. A chapel or a lighthouse. Knowledge of such things was essential to a successful mariner. It was committed to memory and passed from one generation of sailors to another. Out of sight of land, skills of navigation were called into use. In essence, the navigator had to chart a course between point of departure and destination and to ensure that the vessel remained as close as possible to that course. This required estimates to be made of direction, speed, and distance. Direction was all important, and there were many ways it could be assessed with varying degrees of accuracy. The simplest was the position of the sun, its rising and setting giving east and west, while while north and south could be judged by the direction of light and shadow. Another simple indicator widely used in the Mediterranean in early times was wind direction and type. Winds, coming from different directions, had their own distinctive characteristics. Homer noted the west wind as wet, the north as cold, and the south as hot and dry. Even at an early date, the eight-point wind rose was in use and each wind was identified by name. Aristotle added two more, north northeast and north northwest, and Timosthenes of Rhodes described the twelve point rows, a scheme which survived in regular use well into medieval times. At night time, with a clear sky, it would be possible to estimate the celestial pole or null point around which all other stars gave the appearance of moving homer was aware of the importance of the circumpolar stars which to him were ever visible at that time in the 8th century bc the star nearest the pole was kochab rather than polaris as it is now the 3rd century bc greek writer aratus of soli in an astronomical poem describes the constellations of ursa major which contains Kochab and Polaris, and goes on to say, By her guidance, the men of Sidon, the Phoenicians, steer the straight course. That a knowledge of the importance of the celestial pole was widespread along the Atlantic seaways in early medieval times is shown by references to the pole star in Anglo-Saxon vocabularies and the Icelandic sagas, Again, just this is incredible writing. Where else have have you heard so vividly combined from one paragraph to the next? Uh, Homer, Aristotle, and then the anglo saxon and I, Anglo-Saxon poetry and Icelandic sagas. Uh, Barry Cunliffe is always on the mark here. Um, in all probability, this awareness goes back well into the prehistoric period. indeed, Navigation skills were needed, even by land-based hunter-gatherer communities, following herds in the Mesolithic period and earlier. It is probable that sailors were reluctant to spend more than one night out of sight of land, but some journeys would certainly have required consecutive nights at sea. The earliest recorded in Atlantic waters was a northern voyage described by the Irish monk de Cule in the early 9th century. But there is no reason to suppose that this was in any way unusual. And he says, The magnetic compass was to become an important navigational aid, but nothing is known of it before the end of the 12th century, when Alexander of Nehem, abbot of Cernister, describes how a magnetized needle floating in a bowl of water can be used to establish the four cardinal points. A more succinct assessment was made a few years later in the year 1218 by Jacques de Vitry, a bishop recently back from the Crusades, and he describes how an iron needle, after it had made contact with a magnet stone, always turns towards the north star, which stands motionless, while the rest revolve, being, as it were, the axis of the firmament. It is therefore necessary, he says, for those travelling at sea. Neckham's description implies that the compass the compass's only use at sea was in foul weather, and then only to check wind direction. Even by the end of the fifteenth century, when the compass had become a more sophisticated device, the needle was read in relation to a card or a fly, marked with the eight principal winds, with subdivisions giving 32 or 64 points. Although therefore it was possible to establish bearings to five or six degrees, giving compass measurements in degrees was not a common practice until much later. One method of navigation which might conceivably have been used by early sailors in Atlantic waters was latitude sailing. That is sailing due east or west from a particular location in the certain knowledge of arriving in a specific point on an opposite coast. To accomplish this successfully, it was necessary to know the altitude or angular height of the pole star at the ports you were likely likely to frequent. You would then sail north or south until the pole star was at the required port's altitude and then sail east or west along this latitude, keeping the pole star's altitude constant until the landfall was made. Establishing the exact altitude of the pole star at the desired destination was of crucial importance, and to do this it was essential to make minor corrections based on the position of the guards or the stars around the pole star, and to allow for the circle which Polaris describes around True North. Without knowledge of the corrections and without the instruments to measure the altitude accurately, maintaining a latitude could only be done with quite wide margins of error. But the introduction of the Mariner's astrolabe and the quadrant in the 15th century offered much greater precision. But what do you do before the 15th century? Um, In the age of exploration, when establishing location accurately was of crucial importance in defining and communicating routes, measurement of latitude took on a particular significance. But before that, for the sailor plying the Atlantic coasts, traditional methods of navigation, sighting the pole star and using the lead, were sufficient. Setting a course was of prime importance in navigation, but it was also necessary to know what point along the course the vessel had reached. In other words, the navigator had to fix his position in the mental map that he carried in his head of the route. After allowing for leeway and drift, the distance traveled could be calculated as a factor of speed and time. But in the ancient world, neither could be measured with any degree of accuracy. It was usual, therefore, to estimate distance in terms of a day's travel, the distance a standard boat would travel in fair conditions of wind and sea. Thus, according to Timaeus, the tin-producing island of Myctis was six days' sail from Britain there are difficulties in trying to interpret distances given in this way, for it is necessary to know what a day represents here, whether 24 hours or only daylight, and speed would vary considerably, depending on whether the vessel was being rowed or was traveling under sail. An estimate of Viking in early medieval day sailings varies from about 30 to 150 nautical miles. While in the late Middle Ages, when the use of the hourglass allowed time to be estimated fairly accurately, it became conventional to measure distance at sea in terms of leagues. The league being the distance, the average vessel would travel in an hour in fair conditions. And this is the very last paragraph I will share with you here. It says this. To estimate actual speed, sailors developed various rule-of-thumb methods to compare speed achieved with standard speeds. The simplest would have been to measure the time taken for a piece of wood to pass the length of the boat, or to judge relative speed by the amount of spray turbulence caused. The floating object method was gradually formalized, and by the late 15th century it became the accepted technique. The piece of wood, the log, was by then a carefully designed structure with flyers to resist the tow of the ship. It was attached to a line knotted at intervals, and when the log was thrown into the stream, the time taken for a specified number of knots to run over the stem was carefully timed on a small sand glass. A record was kept. The record was called the log. How about that? and the measurement of speed at sea became standardized as the knot equivalent to a nautical mile per hour. Knowing the course and wind or swell corrected for leeway and drift, and the distance sailed calculated in terms of either speed or fraction of a standard day's sail, the navigator could identify his position on his mental chart of the route. Needless to say, there were many inbuilt inaccuracies. How significant all this was to the average sailor along the Atlantic seaboard is debatable. A knowledge of the capes and headlands, a clear sight of the stars, and a sounding lead would have been more than sufficient for most journeys. Combined with an intuitive sense of weather and sea, these were all that an experienced sailor needed. To ensure a safe return to his home port. Now, I don't know how that strikes all of you out there, but that is a, a tremendous bit of writing, and it's tremendously exciting. Uh, a, one example of the nerdiness of all of this will suffice. It happens that whenever I get uh, hyped up about a new subject like this, I assume that everyone else must also be hyped up about it. And I mostly assume that the used bookstores or the libraries around me uh, have all the books that I might need on the subject uh, because why wouldn't they? This is an exciting topic. So I went looking the other day um, for Barry Connelly's newest book. I believe it's called Breton to Britain, something like that. Um, And also a book called Ancient Boats in Northwest Europe by a man named McGrail and also W.H. Uh, Smith's Sailor's Word Book, which was originally published in the 1860s and has since gone through many editions. And I had a whole day planned out. I would go to the main library uh, in Pittsburgh near the University of Pittsburgh, the main Carnegie Library. I would find all three of these books and to, I would be able to bring my daughter with me. She would be able to go into the big old building. would find the books I needed and then we would go home, but we would have made an afternoon out of it. Um, The first thing that told me that uh, it might not work out that way is when I entered Barry Cunliffe's name in the library catalog on my phone and it mixed up my interests and it referred to him as Barry Cuneiform. So when I corrected for all of that, uh, what I realized was that the local main library, this huge old building uh, in downtown Pittsburgh, had none of these books. So uh, it's just a laugh that um, that this is basically what happens all the time. I get hyped up, and then I get settled back down again, don't I? Uh, but that is all I have for this week. And perhaps there will be more about the sea next week, perhaps something else. But until then, thank you, as always, for listening.